Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify as well as um, various other platforms. You can also, I do a live stream on twitch.tv backslash scuttlelemur. So uh, be sure to check that out sometime. And you can also find me at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So this this week, this is, an, this is, in a way, this is an episode kind of a long time coming. I've been thinking of this trio of films to discuss from this filmmaker um, for a long time. And I'm pleased to be joined this time to discuss three films uh, from the legendary Alfred Hitchcock with one half of the Untitled Cinema Gals. Uh, you'll recall that I was on that podcast earlier this year. We were talking about favorite soundtracks, and one of the movies that are going to be discussed tonight was one of those. And uh, I'm pleased to be joined tonight by Morgan Roberts. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I'm so excited to be here. It, it's funny because of the fact that I've been doubling up on a lot of conversations this year um, when it comes to certain films, uh, and a lot of it does actually revolve around that discussion that uh, you, chosen myself, had on your podcast about favorite soundtracks. I've done two episodes where I've talked about In the Mood for Love. I just recorded my second podcast a couple weeks ago where I'm talking about The Crow, and then um, I've, for my podcast, I've done two separate episodes where we've discussed Citizen Kane. And we kind of, we kind of finished that up with Alfred Hitchcock. And he, he is one of those filmmakers where, he, not even because of the significant body of work of 54 movies that he did over a period of four, five decades, but just the way he made his films, um, it always stood out. But one of the first things, before we get to d discussing Hitchcock, um, one of the things I like to do whenever somebody is new to the podcast is ask them what drew them to start writing about, podcasting about, and just discussing their love of movies. Well... That's a big question. Um, I kind of grew up in a family where all we did was like watch movies and television. And I was always searching for other people that were watching the very weird eclectic <laughs> things that I was watching. Because um, I don't know, I don't know many 15 year olds that were like, have you been watching Big Love? It has both <laughs> Bill Paxton and Chloe Sevigny. And most of my peers were like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, um, you know, just talking with people to try to figure out, like, what interests them, as well as the things that were interesting me. Um, and I, I always find it, like, really powerful, like, giving a film to someone saying, like, hey, I really enjoyed this. And then they come back and they're like, hey, I really enjoyed that. And it's like this very fun bonding thing, because mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, I've been on a talked on our own podcast and talked on another podcast about my love of uh, Lynn Shelton, who I think is an incredible director. And I love so much about her films is that it's so much about human connection. And I think that film in general 
is very much about that. It's about helping someone feel less alone. It's about having you and someone that you enjoy being with escape for mm. two and a half hours in a galaxy far, far away or what, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, so I just love the, the connective piece of cinema. So yeah, I just talk about it all the time in a very an- to annoying lengths at, <laughs> at times. <laughs> How did you first get into uh, blogging about uh, movies? I, I, well, I grew up in the age of Tumblr where you could just kind of make your own like blog and be like, this was wonderful. Um, and then just, I, um, write for a couple of different online publications where I basically just kind of invited myself to write for them. I was like, hi, I would really love to talk about this very random thing. Can I do that? Um, and it's also nice when you offer that up for free. Um, so that's kind of how I started doing that. And then, uh, Chels, who is my counterpart on, uh, Untitled Cinema Gals, she, um, does a lot of the editing work for, uh, the Community Rewatch podcast. And I basically invited myself onto that podcast and that's kind of how Chels and I (laughs) met and, uh, yeah, just started talking about movies all the time mm-hmm. yeah it, it's it's interesting how random that can be at times and uh i know for me it was kind of very i know for me it was kind of very deliberate choice to start writing about films and uh you know it's been something that i've been doing since the the late nine the mid to late 90s and then sonic cinema has been online since 2004 so, I mean, obviously, once you do your own website, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're basically going to continue from there. Um, I, it is is fascinating. It always fascinates me to get to know different people who have, like, different backgrounds than I do in terms of... Mm-hmm. And just different... sort Just because of the different age gaps and, you know, sort of how like you were you were talking about tumblers like admittedly i have a tumblr but i don't really do much with it other than like link other things from my other social media to it and that's basically what i do with it um i mean sonic cinema has been my online home since 2004 so basically everything's just kind of uh gravitated from there uh, and once I, I know once I started doing the podcast, one of the things I was most excited about was starting to talk to different filmmakers and just different people who love movies as much as I do, who love talking about movies as much as I do, uh, and just really getting to know them through the films, getting to know them through films that they enjoy, filmmakers that they admire. And I, I love that. You know, you know, you and I both know that Twitter can be a complete cesspool at times. But Correct. at the same time, there are so many people that I know and have gotten mm-hmm. to know and have gotten to interact with because of Twitter. And that's the benefit of social media. That's that's what makes social media such a great tool for getting to for being able to talk about the things that you love because you will inevitably find people that you who love those things too. Yeah, I think 
I think people take themselves a little bit too seriously on social media. And if you can just go in for a good time, then you get to meet people and get to be open to experiences or movies or ideas that you wouldn't be Mm -hmm. interested in. Like there, um, you know, if I didn't have some of the people that I interact with, um, on social media, like, I don't think I would have really gone out of my way to find Miss Juneteenth last year. And that was such a beautiful film. Um, there are just some things that you miss because of your location or Mm. just the people that you're physically around or those things. And it, it helps to have other people guide you to those hidden gems that wouldn't be evident elsewhere. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think ultimately that's the most important thing. That's one of the most important things about social media is the fact that it, it inevitably will get you out of your circle that you've had for so long because of the fact that, I mean, you know, you, you and I have talked a couple of times now and it's like you are, we're not in the same state. We're not even remotely in the same state. And there's mm-hmm. so many of, and I've talked to people from different countries and it's just, such a great experience to be able to get to know other people not only who have similar tastes as you but are have different experiences from you and to see how those experiences sometimes reflect in the movies that they love yeah oh absolutely you learn so much when you ask someone without thinking what's your favorite movie kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my, you know, it's funny because we were, we were talking about my favorite, one of the things I loved about that episode that we did on the favorite soundtracks is the fact that it's like, I, it was funny because I was concerned that like my three favorite choices for soundtracks were about as basic as soundtrack buff favorites that you could choose from. And then you and Chels came in with completely different tastes. But the way that we were able to bring those nine choices together and find some common elements in them, I mean, that, that is one of the things that's so exciting about talking about movies with other people is that you will find something in a wide variety of movies that you just didn't expect to see you didn't expect to notice in otherwise. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like your three choices, I, I wouldn't pair the crow and vertigo together as (laughs) films that have things in common, much like uh, two of my choices were like Pride and Prejudice and Edward Scissorhands that those two are not quite together, but you know, it's always like uh, I had a, professor in school once who would ask people name five of your favorite movies and you would list them and at first like people would start to group them and then like their very weird kind of out there choices started to come in at like four and five and I think that that kind of helps people realize that your taste in movies your understanding in film doesn't have to be like oh I'm a period piece person and that's all I'm gonna Mm -hmm. watch Maybe you also like the South Park movie. It's a good <laughs> musical. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. So like, don't don't feel like you have to pin yourself into a corner of like, this is my niche in film when it's like, there's 
so many genres and so many weird overlaps in the way that film interacts with each other. It's, did you ever see, there was like a trend of cinematographers that had like, you know, Requiem for a Dream and Josie and the Pussycats. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's like, okay, that's kind of what is magical about film is like the same dude who was like, let's do some Darren Aronofsky was also like Josie and the Pussycats should mm. be on Criterion. <laughs> like the, those are the things that happen in film. And um, yeah, I just like the spectrum of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's always interesting when you have those type of, uh, and I think that was basically about like, Oh yeah, this, this cinematographer did do different, <laughs> two completely different movies. Because, yeah, there's no other way you could really pair Josie and Pussycats with Requiem for a Dream, which is <laughs> one no. of the darkest movies ever. And one of those movies that people will say, yeah, I'm probably only going to watch that once, and th- I'm good. Um, yeah. And no matter how you feel about it, like, I'm done after one viewing. But no, and... Yeah, it's it's always and the it's the below the line creds that makes that interesting because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have I mean, we're gonna talk about him today. You've you've got Bernard we've got Bernard Herman who did Vertigo, who did Psycho, who did North North by Northwest and Marnie, but he also did Citizen Kane, he also did The Day the Earth Stood Still. And he also worked with Orson Welles on the War of the Worlds radio that famous War of the Worlds radio show, too. And then you have uh, Franz Waxman, who wrote the music for um, for uh, Rebecca, and then he's got completely various, completely varied creds. And, I mean, he won an Oscar for Laura. No, wait a minute, I'm thinking of Miklos Rosa, sorry. I'm, for some reason, I'm drawing a blank on uh, Franz Waxman, rest of his career, but he... You know, it's like, especially composers, they always have these weird, divergent places that their careers take them. And uh, it's it's always kind of interesting to find those connections. And the fact that, you know, some of these movies can be so different, but, you know, the, the people behind them have just world-class talent to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I I just find it. And I also really enjoy though, because I mean, we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock and the fact that he works, worked with uh, Bernard Herrmann so often. Mm -hmm. I also love like frequent collaborative, like teams. I always find them really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, And just kind of like, the ability to both grow in their own respective field while also respecting like the foundation of what made their original collaboration Mm -hmm. work. Um, I always find that really interesting, but then bringing in someone different and doing things differently. Um, Like I listened to a podcast with David Lowry, who has worked with a lot of the same production team on all of his different productions, but every so often he has to bring someone new in because he goes from Ain't Them Body Saints to Pete's Dragon and can't bring Bradford Young with him. So yeah. he has to find a new cinematographer. 
And, you know, talking about that collaborative, the, the collaborative spirit of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just, it's all so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, Hitchcock and Herman is one of the more interesting ones because of the fact that it's like you have, you have Vertigo, you have North by Northwest, you have Psycho. And then he didn't use underscore for the birds. And then he brought Herman back for Marnie. I mean, we'll talk about the similarities in the movies between Vertigo and Marnie, and that's part of the reason why I've always paired them with them but together, but it's always inter but yeah, I mean the fact that and the fact that it was Herman who who basically convinced Hitchcock that let me try do something with the shower scene in Psycho. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't want music in the shower scene in Psycho, but Herman's like, let me try something. And sure enough, it's one of the most memorable pieces of music in history. Yeah, and, it's uh, purely iconic. Yeah. And I know we were, I know, uh, you know, we, you had Edward Scissorhands as one of your favorite, uh, mm-hmm. compo- favorite film scores. And uh, the, the fact you look at Tim Burton and Danny Elfman and you just mm-hmm. look at the way they collaborate over the years there's so much variety in that and it's it's i i think especially the composer filmmaker director collaboration because i mean heck as long as spielberg and john williams have been working together there is yeah there's many twists and turns in that dynamic and that the way that they that williams has scored movies that you can imagine in such a collaboration Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably like peak filmmaker-composer collaboration because, I mean, Williams scored all of these Spielberg films, whether Spielberg was the director or a producer on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, you have Star Wars. um, You have... uh, So we have, what, Jaws, uh, E.T. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, Schindler's List, uh, Saving Private Ryan, like, mm-hmm. those are ones that, like, when you hear that violin, you're like, oh, now it's time to be sad. You hear, mm-hmm. um, just like, you know when you're listening to the E.T. soundtrack because of how everything is composed. And, um, I mean, Star Wars, Harry Potter, he's not working with Spielberg on those ones, but like iconic mm-hmm. scores yeah. for those as well. That it's like, oh, he can bring that same level when he works with Steven Spielberg. He brings that same level when he is working with Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus, and all of those other people. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, what a magical. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and transition to Alfred Hitchcock himself. And uh, it, I, what was your first experience watching Hitchcock? Uh, the birds. When I was too little <laughs> to watch the birds. I don't know if you remember the scene where the teacher is like pecked to death yeah. in yeah. the uh, play structure. Uh, terrifying mm-hmm. could not play at recess for a while uh i i honestly think i was like five or six when oh, i wow. watched that and that was yeah because my parents are idiots um <laughs> parents of the 90s i guess um 
But yeah, I remember that one and it scared me so bad. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I remember watching North by Northwest, I think, but did he do Niagara as well? No, he didn't. What was the one? Maybe it was North by Northwest where I remember watching it and going like, this is too stressful. Uh, why? Who's enjoying this right now? <laughs> um, and then it was probably in high school when I watched Psycho. Mm-hmm. And I've always associated the more horror films with Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And then watching the three films that we watched now where they're like kind of the psychological thrillers um, felt like watching someone who has the same technique as Hitchcock almost dabbling in a different genre, yeah. even though it is Hitchcock. Yeah. It's, it's funny because of the fact that, you know, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned Hitchcock's two horror films. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see what a legacy he created with horror just in two films in Psycho and the Birds. And, I mean, my, my mom had been watching, has watched the Birds several times over the past few months, and uh, it's it's always it always I think it was a last year when we were watching it that it struck me oh my god there's no music in this movie how did I not really you don't pick up on that and it's always it's always like we were talking about on the soundtracks it's it's interesting you know it's interesting to you know it's kind of predictable to a certain extent when filmmakers decide to use music in movies it really mm-hmm. stands out when they don't use it. And I think we were talking yeah. about In the Mood for Love because that's a very sparse musical soundtrack. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact that The Birds just doesn't have one, it's all special sound effects. And it's just as chilling as the uh, as, as Psycho is with The Strings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that those two kind of... Um, Psycho gets you with, I mean, the strings, the, the twists and the turns in it, because I think Psycho is kind of the thing that made, um, filmmakers like Wes Craven be able to make Mm -hmm. good, interesting horror films, because it was like most horror films still followed a very specific structure. And then in Psycho, when you you know, spoiler alert on a 50 year old film. <laughs> but if, when you kill Janet Lee in the first act, that's a huge plot twist that no one saw coming. Yeah. Um, and then with the birds, I think what's so interesting is that you're essentially just sitting there waiting for the thing to happen, whether it's the music or the sound effect or whatever, you're mm. just have, you have to sit there in anticipation, which is just so painful. Um, but, and then I also think that North by Northwest is a little bit of a horror film because I want to be chased by a biplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, crop dusting scene in North by Northwest, which is my mother's favorite film, um, it's, it's, that one always gets you, and that's another example of just not using music until the very end. And that is such a brilliant touch by Hitchcock and Herman to ratchet up the tension just by the specter of what's going to happen when that crop duster comes towards mm-hmm. uh, Roger Thornhill. And, um, yeah, it's I, the thing that's interesting about Hitchcock is he essentially, 
I mean, he worked in other genres. I mean, we're going to talk about one of them. I although that I I mean I think Rebecca is more of a gothic horror. It's not really a traditional thriller, mm-hmm. and um, you know he he ultimately did work predominantly in the thriller genre, and it's fascinating to see how he twisted and turned that genre into different ideas. I mean there were a couple big ones that he did with. Um, you know, North by Northwest, it's wrongly accused, person wrongly accused of something and uh, people are chasing him. Yeah. And then you have, and and then you have, you know, just straightforward uh, suspense thrillers like Strangers on a Train where you just watch the unfolding of a situation. And, you know, I, these three films that we're talking about is, are one that, one of the things that I've always paired them together on is I think they have three of the most compelling, if not the three most compelling female characters Hitchcock ever worked with. Um, And I think the fact is there are three examples where he really does not, he really doesn't have a sympathetic male lead. Like, all three of the male leads... I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Vertigo a little bit. And, I mean, you can argue there's still a lot of sympathy by the end for uh, Scotty, but ultimately, all three of these guys are not really... Uh, they, they aren't really... They're very problematic main characters, and it's because yeah. of the way they treat the female characters. Yeah, which part of me always makes me wonder if that's just if that was a conscious choice or not, because we know that Alfred Hitchcock was not necessarily nice to women. Nope. (laughs) Um, And especially the way that he treats women in film, like just being portrayed in film too, of almost, he kind of treats them like Tennessee Williams did of like, oh, they're hysterical. Oh, they're broken. Oh, Mm -hmm. they're the reason that men fail. Um, And I, uh, I was just watching Marnie going like, is this where Charlie Kaufman got his inspiration to write all of his films for? Because (laughs) that's what it felt like of just like, Oh, you at least aren't giving us a sympathetic male lead, but you're certainly not doing any justice to the, for the women either. So it's, it's very, these were like perfectly all put together to just see that every so often uh, Hitchcock would go back and be like, how can I mistreat a blonde this decade? <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, yeah, and we'll certainly, there's a lot to talk about with Marnie, uh, to be sure, on yes. both sides <laughs> of the both sides of the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that when the, we get there. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the first place I want to start is naturally with the first one that came out is uh, 1940s Rebecca which is based on the novel by Daphne... Oh, how do you pronounce her name? I don't want Daphne to... Daphne du Maurier? I think it's it's something like that. Um, I, I apologize. I don't... Uh, it is produced by David O. Selznick. It was Hitchcock's first American produ- production. It did win the Best Picture Oscar this year. It was the only time a Hitchcock film won Best Picture. He was nominated for a handful Best Director nominations. I want to say it's four, 
I think he got nominated three or four times for director, but he did not win any time. Um, John Ford actually won this year for The Grapes of Wrath, and uh, it, it's it's funny because of the fact that we were I was I was I talked about Grapes of Wrath earlier this year, and uh, you know it's it's one of those things where it's like I've always loved Marnie. It's always been one of or sorry, I've always loved Rebecca. Uh, I, it's always been one of Hitchcock's best for me. Um, I think it is a better film than Grapes of Wrath, but admittedly, it is still really surprising that Grapes of Wrath did not win Best Picture for this year um, because that would seem to be the natural uh, choice. But this was also David O. Selznick coming off of Gone with the Wind. And so mm-hmm. it made two straight Best Picture uh, wins for him. And... Rebecca tells the story of a young woman who we never actually learned the name of, uh, played by Joan Fontaine. She is on vacation with her guardian, uh, Miss Van Hopper, in Monte Carlo, and she first, uh, and that's where she first meets Maxim de Winter, played by the great Sir, Sir Lawrence Olivier. And uh, they have, they start up a relationship in one of the more unusual fashions of a relationship ever being, uh, you know, it's not really a meet-cute because you get the impression that maybe DeWinter is committing suicide. Yeah, like there is, he's like on a cliff and she's like, yo, are you okay? And he's like, buzz off. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, that's a dark way to meet. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, they also very quickly are like, oh, we're infatuated with each other, which I guess if you uh, are like contemplating living again, maybe you just kind of breeze into a relationship ASAP. <laughs> but um, yeah, it it's very interesting. The I will say this film does a really great job of setting up that power dynamic mm-hmm. between Joan Fontaine's character and uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier's character um, because it is very quickly noting who has the upper hand throughout this. And I think that that scene, while not romantic, certainly did a great job of establishing, like, this is where these two people sit in a power dynamic situation. Yeah. And it's interesting because of the fact that one of those, it's, the as the relationship unfolds, it it starts the way it starts out. It does feel like Joan Fontaine's character is more interested in De Winter than he is in her. He kind mm-hmm. of goes along with it more than he really is invested in it because I mean it's obvious you know because it's really when it's not until she is like ready to leave and she's distraught that he starts to go oh well well we get married i mean it's not a it, it, it from the outset it's not a healthy relationship at all it's not healthy and like you said the power dynamic is very clear and uh mm-hmm. it's going to get more complicated when they go back to uh um when they go back to mandalay and uh mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me re-watching it this time, I've watched it a few times over the years. Uh, this is one that I saw off of, I taped it off of uh, 
Turner Classic Movies one time in the 90s, and I, along with Suspicion, actually, which was Hitchcock's next film, and got Joan Fontaine the Oscar that she probably should have won for this movie. But, um, and uh, it's it's fascinating that this really does not start, like, what we consider a Hitchcock film. Mm-mm. And I think it's because of the fact that, really, Selznick is probably more the driving force in this movie than Hitchcock is, it becomes a Hitchcock film. As it goes on, you see a lot of the, you see a lot of what we would come to see in Hitchcock's films in the 40s and 50s come out, but it's very much more of, oh, this is a celebrated novel, we're going to bring it to the screen, much like Selznick did with Gone with the Wind. Yeah, it also kind of has like the, what Guillermo del Toro would do later with, he's very much known for like his sci-fi fantasy horror combination. And yes, he did it in this film, but in Crimson Peak, which is kind of another gothic horror film, (laughs) um, he really stepped away from like using the supernatural as the backbone Mm -hmm. because it was so much more about the suspense and the juxtaposing romance, which Rebecca kind of does too, of juxtaposing those two yeah. elements, that it was like, oh, I can totally see how you can be influenced by this film and also feel like this is the farthest away from a Hitchcock film than you'll ever be yeah. um, because of that, because it mm. has like the, yes, there's this gothic horror darkness mysterious element to it but we're also weaving in like romance and infatuation and uh you know the second mrs de winter's like insecurities and all of these like very interesting you don't normally see them in a hitchcock film Mm -hmm. ideas yeah and uh so Maxim de Winter is uh, a year removed, I believe it's a year removed, from the tragic death of his wife, Rebecca, and uh, at sea. And it was thought to be tragic, although we'll learn... It is still tragic, but we'll learn that there's something more nefarious with it uh, as we go on. And um, they get married and go to Mandalay. And that is where we meet uh, the wonderful Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers, who is the head Mm -hmm. of the household in terms of the servants as well. And she was Rebecca's long, uh, she was Rebecca's assistant for a long time. And she immediately, sort of of like the power dynamic between uh, De Winter and Fontaine's character establishes early on the power dynamic between Mrs. Danvers and Fontaine's character um, establishes itself as well. And she is somebody who very much is against the Fontaine character for no reason other than the fact that she is not Rebecca, really. Yeah. And I find that very interesting of because so much of it is, it's essentially a ghost story about being haunted by the past. Yeah. And if anyone is struggling the most, it's Mrs. Danvers in just how insidious that haunting is because she can't move past it. 
She's, you know, always comparing the first Mrs. DeWinter to the second Mrs. DeWinter and is very trying to control it. And you have, you know, Joan Fontaine's characters essentially going like, what is your problem? I am a very, I'm a different person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't either make me into this new Rebecca and you also can't hold me to like an unrealistic standard because you don't like me and have those two things exist. Like we just have to move past that. Um, but yeah, she is deliciously um, stone cold. Mm. Uh, I love her performance in this. Yeah, she is fantastic in this. And uh, she, she, the cruelty she shows towards Fontaine's character is, and, and there, there's, and some of it is very subtle, and then some of it is also very direct. And uh, mm-hmm. we sometimes don't know how direct it is until, like, we see the effect it has on Fontaine's relationship to uh, De Winter, and um, especially with the uh, ball that they have, and then the dress. Of course, he she is told Fontaine's character to make herself up like Rebecca but for some reason Fontaine's character uh, and Fontaine's character did, doesn't realize it until De Winter sees sees it and is just furious and mm-hmm. just it, I'm it's fascinating that there are there are female characters in all three of these movies that aren't the that aren't necessarily a romantic don't make it romantic triangle for the two main characters, but they also play a significant part in in how that those relationships between the main characters play out. And I yeah. mean, it's not as obvious in Vertigo, and we'll certainly talk about that, but. Definitely in Rebecca and Marnie, you definitely get that impression in uh, Mrs. Danvers and then the uh, character in, uh, and then the other character in Marnie. Yeah, it, Mrs. Danvers is kind of like the foil to the relationship. Like, she's not the foil to the main character because the relationship is the main character mm-hmm. in a sense. Like, you know, yes, the second Mrs. DeWinter is a, Winter exists, yes, Maxim de Winter exists, but it's their relationship that is the driving force of the plot and the understanding, and she is the antagonist to that metaphorical lack of a character mm-hmm. protagonist. Yeah, she she's really, I mean, really, you can almost read her as the uh, physical manifestation of Rebecca, like, mm-hmm. in terms of the wedge that she drives between Maxim de Winter and the second Miss de Winter. Yeah, she's kind of almost like the physical manifestation of the haunting. Yeah. Um, so then that way it's like, oh yes, I'm your constant reminder that she's not Rebecca. Um, I also just always find it very interesting that this film does not give the second Mrs. de Winter much of an identity outside of, and obviously this is probably, this is from the source material as well. Um, But, you know, she is never given her own identity outside of the one that's 
recognized with the relationship. Meanwhile, Rebecca, who isn't really a full-blown character in this film, is the titular role and is everywhere. So I find it really interesting that even just in the naming of people, that the haunting of who Rebecca was is ever-present. Do you think there's ever a moment where Maxim DeWinter truly feels something for the second Mrs. DeWinter? I I think when he first takes her to uh, Manderley that he kind of does, but not in like an affectionate spouse way, in more of a look I can move on mm-hmm. sort of way. Yeah. Um, that she's almost like the prop where therapy should be. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> for lack of a better term, I guess. Um, yeah. And like, I think that that's the only time that he feels anything toward the second Mrs. Mm-hmm. DeWinter is, is then. Yeah, I was the reason I asked that is because you were talking about the power dynamic between Maxim and the Mrs. Second Mrs. DeWinter uh, being established early on. I think one of the other things that you see established very on early on that you bring up is the fact that he's also a very weak man, and mm-hmm. he's basically he basically seems to be he's just overwhelmed. We think at the at the start that he's overwhelmed by grief, but I think we do come to realize as the movie reveals itself, reveals the true nature of Rebecca's relationship and Mac with Maxim and vice versa, that he's probably instead of grief, it's more guilt because mm-hmm. over what he did with Rebecca. And the realization that this is kind of opening up, this is going to start to open up those old wounds as well as those old questions of what exactly happened to Rebecca. Yeah, and I think it also kind of goes to like an inadequacy because I feel like many times the shame or guilt that people have it, uh, when we're seeing it depicted in film is very frequently associated with like inadequacy. And Mm -hmm. I I think that because from watching it, it it always feels like Rebecca um, was very diminishing to Mr. DeWinter because I mean, he's the one with the house and like the title-ish kind of thing and like with the prestige. And yet he is like continually emasculated by her and Mm -hmm. is made to feel lesser and either both due to her own intentional actions or just by being more revered and liked by others. And so he has someone in that power dynamic who no one likes, which that's a win for him. Um, she is only associated as being his wife, not Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she is malleable. She's so much younger than him in comparison. Um, he he holds all of the cards where she doesn't even know that they're playing poker. Um, and so I can just, you know, his 
inability to feel adequate is greatly changed when he meets the Mrs. Uh, second Mrs. DeWinter yeah. because he doesn't even have to care about her and she's just infatuated with him and he's mm-hmm. like great and you know then as you say is his guilt kind of rises as the film continues it's also showing that it's like oh he was probably like really insecure about his relationship really insecure about himself mm-hmm. and all of those feelings that he thought he could just get rid of with a blonde wife are all coming back um because those things that happen never truly leave yeah um yeah yeah, and, and I mean, that's that's part of where, because I'd, I'd seen Vertigo before I'd seen Rebecca, so it was pretty, like, some of the similarities, bet- especially between um, DeWinter and Scotty in yeah. Vertigo really become apparent because of the fact that it's like, they're essentially doing the same thing. They're essentially replacing someone that they lost with somebody that they can manipulate and it's it's the ways that hitchcock go the different directions that hitchcock goes into and we'll talk about vertigo because i think the way the way he goes there's a reason that vertigo is revered and it's the way it's because of the fact that i think in vertigo he does not go the direction that you would necessarily expect him to go. But here he kind of does go in that direction. It's just a different, it it becomes more of a horror movie because of the fact that it becomes a horror movie in the sense that you realize just how much of a sociopath really Maxim de Winter is because of what he ended up doing with Rebecca. And it's also a horror movie because of the fact that you have this, even if it's not a supernatural aspect, you have this otherworldly aspect of, in the character of Rebecca, that is just shadowing over everything. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And it's, yes. it's always, they're always present. And uh, Mrs. Danvers is... She is. She doesn't completely realize the situation that she's been in, but she's working through her grief. She's the one truly working over grief over Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She is kind of the only person that is actually grieving Rebecca, which is also very interesting because Rebecca wasn't necessarily. Because I mean, again, it's Alfred Hitchcock, no woman in his film can have like redeemable qualities to them. Um, So like Rebecca's also very complicated and kind of manipulative and Mrs. Danvers is mourning a person that it was much more of a character of who she thought she knew and not the actual person, which is always kind of interesting watching people say, oh, this was the best human ever. And yet they didn't know the extent of their layers and possible yeah. flaws and all of that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, this is, and you know, I did not dislike the Ben Wheatley version of this story as much as everybody else did. I mean, one thing I did recognize very early on in this rewatch of Hitchcock's film is that 
Sir Lawrence Olivier was very much exactly the right role, right age to play mm-hmm. Maxim De Winter and Ar- Arnie Army Hammer was not. Like he was way too young to have the type of baggage that he's supposed to carry as Rebecca. Um, but I mean, I didn't mind it. I mean, I didn't even mind the change to colors. Like I thought that was an interesting way of going with it. And, I mean, if you're going, bl- if he, if Wheatley had gone black and white, it would have been too obviously compared to Hitchcock. I think yeah. he did as much as he could to make his own movie. But I mean, you really cannot do. It's it's tough to do something like this on the level of what Hitchcock was able to do. Yeah, it's always really so. I have not watched the remake um, because I don't have two hours to just <laughs> give to Netflix um, yeah. for that particular film. Um, but yeah, I think. It, they were just all kind of screwed from the get-go because it is always going to be compared to Hitchcock Mm -hmm. and not the source material where something like Anna Karenina has been done a million times that Joe Wright can get away with doing kind of weird, funky things Mm -hmm. with that story. Um, Yeah, so you just, you can remake Hitchcock. (laughs) Just ask Gus Van Zandt. It doesn't go well. (laughs) Well, and the way Gus Van Zandt did is probably the most... you know, and even that one, I found I thought thought was interesting because of what he was trying to do. I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. doesn't hold a candle to the Hitchcock film, but I I think you it's one of those cases where you really do sort of see how different actors, what different actors and what different director will bring to the same material. It's one of the few yes. times you really do see that so it's like i i think to i think there in lies some actual value to the gus van zandt psycho even though it's not even close yeah. to what hitchcock no and i mean if gus van zandt can't yeah get anywhere close <laughs> everyone else stop what you're doing yeah i mean of course we we haven't even necessarily did you have anything more you wanted to uh, talk about with uh, Rebecca before we continue? No. Okay. Yeah. No, I think we're good. You know, so it it's almost be it it would almost be hard not to bring up Brian De Palma as a filmmaker who's clearly inspired by Hitchcock, and uh, it it was funny because of the fact that um, in July I watched I I inspired by the Sharon Stone brush up with her comments on Meryl Streep, and it's like, uh, whatever. It's silly controversy, but it nonetheless got me interested in rewatching Basic Instinct, which I hadn't seen in a long time. And then Criterion Channel brought on Body Doubles, part of its neo-noir. It was fascinating to watch both of those movies on either side of the film that is the clear inspiration for both, which is Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 film Vertigo, with Jimmy Stewart, with Kim Novak, uh, Barbara Bel Geddes, uh, based on a novel by Pierre Boulle, and it, it is so wild to me that Pierre Boulle wrote the movie, that, the book that inspired Rear, uh, Vertigo, as well as Planet of the Apes. 
it it fascinates me that he has those two books in his repertoire that because they couldn't be more different movies. Yeah, no, far far um, from each other. So Vertigo is recently this past decade dethroned Citizen Kane as the great official greatest movie ever made by Sight and Sound, their critics panel. It is it's a movie that was a failure at the time, and uh, it was one of the it was the last collaboration between uh, Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart, and uh, it stars Jimmy Stewart as Scotty Ferguson, a former police officer who has been who's basically retired because of a debilitating vertigo that resulted in a police officer dying, which we see in the opening scene. He is asked by a former college friend, uh, Gavin Elster, played by Tom Helmore, to follow Elster's wife, Madeline, played by Kim Novak. And the reason Elster gives him is because of the fact that she is bothered by premonitions of a distant relative, Carlotta Valdez. And it follows... First, we see Scotty follow Madeline. Then, after Madeline tries to kill herself in San Francisco Bay, we think kill herself in San Francisco Bay, um, they meet. They eventually fall in love. And Madeline is pushed to to kill herself atop a uh, church bell tower. And from there, uh, Scotty is overcome by grief and uh he is eventually he eventually is uh about a year later he meets a woman named Judy also played by Kim Novak who looks suspiciously like Madeline and we'll talk about the rest of that as uh the discussion goes this is I saw this shortly I didn't see it during the 1996 uh during the 1996 um, reissue of the uh, full restoration that happened at that time, but I made sure, made a point to watch it, uh, to rent it as soon as it came out on VHS, and it's it's been one of the seminal uh, Hitchcock films for me ever since. It's it's my, I I think it, for me it is the best film I've ever seen. I think there's. This is Hitchcock at his absolute best as a craftsman. I think the scene, the early scene where Scotty trails Madeline, it is a film in and of itself. And you get Bernard mm-hmm. Herrmann's score in that sequence. It's one of the most consequential pieces of film music, I think, in how film music can work at its best in that sequence because it drives the narrative just as much as the action does. Yes. Uh, His score is impeccable for um, being a equal element in storytelling. And what I, you know, I did not actually see this until much later in life because it was parodied a lot in the, television series Pushing Daisies. <laughs> um, there is actually a scene uh, in, uh, at like a convent at a bell tower and uh, very reminiscent of 
good old vertigo. Um, and, And I think that that goes to tell, you know, shows like it's timelessness of just the, the craftsmanship that Hitchcock had with it. Um, as well as just like there are iconic moments, you know, like the ending itself is extremely I- iconic because it's kind of like that very last. We've been on twists and turns and we're like, what else is going to happen? Mm-hmm. And it just is like, and here's this. Thank you so much. Um, but I love, I mean, Jimmy Stewart's great. Mm-hmm. as always but i think that kim novak is kind of the linchpin to this whole thing because she understands the layers of where her character is at all times and well i get character characters yeah. um and i think that she's kind of able to navigate that much better than Jimmy Stewart in this instance, because I, I don't think his character called for it, which is good for him. But um, like, yeah, like she just like knew exactly the pieces that needed to come together. So then that way, if you rewatch it, you're like, oh, that's a really good move by her here Mm -hmm. that was highlighted by Hitchcock. And oh, oh, that's very smart that we're pairing these scenes later on to a couple of scenes that we saw earlier in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, like just the structure of it. Now, as we said, these are just problematic movies about how much Alfred Hitchcock likes to be mean to blondes, but you know, I, you don't go wrong with someone like Kim Novak. No. Her performance in this is, not just one of the great performances in Hitchcock, it's one of the great performances, period, full stop. I I would put it against any of the great performances in movie history. I I think even before, well, I mean, no, you need the second, you need the second half of the movie to really see just how good Kim Novak is. She's basically, in, in the first part of the movie, She's essentially the use the way Elster uses Madeline. She and Judy, she is a prop. She is mm-hmm. a prop for Hitchcock to project this type of idea of a woman onto Scotty. And I, I think Jimmy Stewart's terrific in this. Um he, he really is I mean he, he is fantastic because it is it's one of the few times where you see him play truly a... He's truly malevolent, in a way, in the second yeah. half of this movie. I mean, that's one of the things that's so amazing about what Hitchcock does, is he he takes one of the iconic good guys in movie history, and he turns him into as much of a villain as Gavin Elster is. And yeah, well, almost in spite of himself. And I think what's interesting, though, is his performance is a little bit one note, and I think purposefully, yeah, because Kim Novak can kind of weave in and out and give us the layers, and she's the one that continually is pointing out his malevolence, and he's not good at the start of the film. Yeah. Like, 
that's one of the things is that we were tricked into because it's Jimmy Stewart saying, I'm here to be a good guy. And you're like, sold, got it. And then she slowly unravels that for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's kind of an even better reveal than some of the other stuff that happened later on. Cause she, at one point she literally does call him out of like, what is happening to you? And I, uh, with all of his faults, at least Hitchcock did that. Cause you know, it would have been very difficult to sit there without someone saying what everyone else was sitting there thinking, going like, he is not well. No, no. And he, he wasn't, you know, I, you wonder how much of Scotty's vulnerability uh, Elster knew mm-hmm. at the time that he, at, at the time that he hired him. And I mean, you know, you, you wonder how much of it is because Scotty is very much a pawn of Elster's from minute one. The second yeah. he takes that meeting, Scotty is, Scotty is, you know, Elster's going to goad Scotty into doing this because he knows Scotty's nature because it's also the nature we associate with Jimmy Stewart in in movies. And uh, one of the things I wrote down uh, as we get into the section where Judy comes into play is we... This is where the difference between having empathy for a character and having sympathy for a character is very mm-hmm. important for a movie because we lack we as soon as Scotty starts to go in on wanting to change Judy to look like Madeline, we lose sympathy with him, but I don't know that we completely lack empathy for him because you you see the way he was manipulated by Elster in that first half of the movie. Yeah, and I think, well, one of the things that I always wonder that when you watch something and you're like, oh, I'm picking up on this, I wonder if the filmmaker actually did this intentionally or it's their own bias that somehow miraculously made something very smart. But essentially the whole film is just about men feeling entitled to manipulate other people for their gains, whether it's Scotty, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Gavin Elster, like that is the underlying moral of the story. And I think what it does is, you know, it doesn't condone actions because I think that that's what we, for a good person, for us to like a character, we want to be able to condone their actions, whether they're right or wrong actions. But in this one, it gives context to their actions mm-hmm. of just like, this is what it is. Um, so then that way you can say like, I'm either going to be, have a little bit of empathy. I'm going to have a lot of bit of empathy, but it gives you enough context to then make the decision on how sold you are in caring about that character moving mm-hmm. forward. I uh, Barbara Bel Geddes is uh midge and the, the, other most important character in this movie. She is a another friend of uh, Scotty's for a while back and also somebody who's very much in love with him. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she... The painting that she does of herself in the Carlotta dress is 
I don't, you know, it's like you almost, what type of reaction was she expecting to get out of Scotty with that? I wonder. I mean, I think sometimes when you see someone absolutely obsessed with something, you're like, oh, that must be because they like it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, Scotty is a character who is really hard to feel sympathy for, even from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never really been like, oh, I mean, I get what was going on because context of casting James Stewart, but, you know, 30 minutes into the film, you're like, why is anyone pining after him? Like, what is happening here? He's the main character, but he's not the good guy because we associate the good guy and the main character as the same person. Um, And so I think that one of the things is is he's not open about, like, what's really happening to him. So it's these people who are trying to show care and they're doing it in all the wrong ways and he blames them for it. And it's like, well, bro, you never told anyone how you're feeling so how are they supposed to know yeah um and and i think that's kind of the same with like his eventual infatuation with madeline of like yeah he's saying that he's into her but then his just like very deep kind of psychotic just interest in her is to the point where it's like, okay, that's not, that's not a healthy way to just interact with women, to Mm -hmm. try to start a relationship with someone. You can't tell them to fit into a certain box because they look like someone that you were absolutely obsessed with. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things where you have, you know, let's talk basic instinct of someone who is just absolutely this person is going to be mine in one way or another. And, you know, basic instinct does it in kind of a flipped way. Um, but yeah, like James Stewart's character is not, there, there's very few redeemable qualities about him. And you start chipping away at the few that you had at the very beginning mm-hmm. as the film progresses. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, why I was thinking about it's it's interesting that we don't really see Midge after um after Madeline's death other than in the in the hospital when she's mm-hmm. visiting Scotty. And uh you know the the thing is it's like it it actually kind of makes sense that we don't see her because of the fact that she is she's really the only person whom you would hope could probably talk Scotty Mm -hmm. out doing what he's about to do with Judy. And so it really does kind of make sense that she's not in the last half of the movie. I mean, I know that there was an alternate ending that was in, like, I think the European cut and stuff like that. And it just, I've seen it a couple of times. It just doesn't work. The way the the movie ends is the way the movie should end because Mm -hmm. it's... It it basically is, you know, Scotty. Scotty basically love lost the woman he loved for the second time, and it's completely his fault this time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what's interesting with the character of Midge is she kind of is the very stereotypical 
female thing that women are sometimes known of doing of saying, I'm going to fix this man yeah, and I'll just put in all the work for it. So like, it makes sense that after she's like, I can't fix him. I'm going to take him to a place that can, and I got to bounce because I've put in so much time and effort and care into somewhat bonkers things to try to help him. And he is not interested in helping himself. And that's not my job anymore. Um, And so then you have the character of Judy coming in and he's trying to not only put his Madeline obsession onto her, but his, you are also like my Bob the Builder person, the way that Midge was like, you have to keep me together. And it's like not signing up for any of these roles. Mm. That was not part of the plan here. And so I think that adds a different layer to uh, Kim Novak's character later on in the film, because now we have this physical manifestation of a previous character and then the emotional support of the other one and having to have all of that Mm -hmm. be what James Stewart's character is searching for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you were, you were talking about, uh, Scotty and how unwell he is in this movie. It's like, we, they don't even acknowledge the fact that he's obsessed with a married woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's just completely glossed over. You don't even, you know, the, the movie doesn't explain it. You know, Elster's like, you know, what, whatever, dude. I mean, you know, you, I mean, that should have been a tip off right there. To him that you know yeah. something's not quite right with Elster. It's like why would you know? It's like in like he says. It's like why don't you just hire like a private detective? And it's like it's gotta be you. And it's you know that dude complete red flag for your your yes. friend. It's like why is he not doing this the right way? And um, mm-hmm. no, it's it's it's. It's also it's it's also this idea that you know that is a unfortunate stereotype, and it's like you know I will admit that I think every every guy has this, which is the idea of the damsel in distress. You feel mm-hmm. like you have to you have to save the damsel in distress, and once you get you know, and thankfully you know I got out of that period of my life where it's like I feel felt like that's why I need it. That's why I wanted, even though it really is, you know, even though, and you realize, no, you don't want somebody who's in distress because that just shows that you're in distress too, because you have that particular mm-hmm. thing that you're projecting onto somebody. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like you're seeking out someone who has the exact same affliction that you currently have, um, which, you know, is ironic, funny in Judy because she's like um yeah I'm none of those things that you're trying to put me into and I I also think that it's kind of a mm, she she kind of is like that fatal female character where it's like because she had to interact with this man she is doomed from the get-go yeah um and I mean we see that in a lot of works where it just is I mean, James Bond is like a perfect example of a film series where, you know, the femme fatale character, but it is, you were just doomed because you interacted with this man. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what else you do. You are doomed to either be 
be stopped by him, to be dead by the end of act three, to, you know, have your life completely crumble around you. And, you know, I always find it really interesting seeing that in film because it's very common that we just allow women to be destroyed by men without any kind of care. And it's both universal and like it happens a lot in film and it happens over many generations. Um, And to your point too, it's really weird that they did not mention that like there was no judgment about him being obsessed with a married woman. They were just like, Hey, you shouldn't be obsessed with this lady. The, it, this is 1958. Everyone yeah. is like <laughs> very, uh, you know, we're trying to do like a throwback to Puritanism by that time. And at no point are we concerned about the fact that he is actively obsessing over someone who is married to a, another human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talking about the twist and it's funny because, you know, this has, Almost as it's as probably as not as more surprising than the twist in Psycho that it essentially becomes a Norman Bates movie, but mm-hmm. the fact that we find out so early in that second half of the movie about Judy and who Judy is, I mean, I can't imagine the movie not revealing it at that point. You have to reveal it at that point, I think. I mean, I could see you maybe trying to dance around the similarities and the characters, but at the same time, I this movie, if you don't have Judy, if you don't have the truth about Judy, then you really aren't going to see the change in perspective on how we start to see Scotty as mm-hmm. much. Yeah. I mean, if we didn't have that twist, then, yeah, I don't think that it would have the context for us to be able to judge him or feel the ability to judge him. Because, again, I think that there were very few redeemable qualities about him in the first half. And in the second half, the Judy reveal and the things that follow kind of allow you to be like, okay, that was a red flag. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gut was right. Yeah, I wouldn't have trusted that. But then it makes you think, okay, if I know these things, then what the heck is going to happen? Yeah. Because, you know, it's just not going to be like her, you know, saying, well, I'm going to move far away from you (laughs) and live out my life because that's not an Alfred Hitchcock film. So, you know, that then leads to anxiety and anticipation of, okay, well, now we've had a shoe drop, the other one must follow. Mm And do you, I, I was wondering, do you think Scotty has any suspicions about the, the truth about Judy before the necklace at the end? I, I honestly, I don't. I think he was a very oblivious person because there were, it was red flag city up in that joint. Like there were just so many things that it was like, why aren't you, you had pause at the beginning of the film and have had no pause since. Mm-hmm. That just shows that you have some very significant blind spots up right now. 
I don't like, no, I think that he was just too oblivious yeah. <laughs> to be like, oh yeah, that's hmm, red flags here. Yeah. This, this is, I mean, this is, this is probably one of the, well, it, I do think it is the strongest character, female character we've ever seen in Alfred Hitchcock's film. Um, not just in terms of the character's, uh, Emotional strength, because, I mean, you would have to have emotional strength on Judy's part to even consider getting back involved with Scotty after everything we know and have seen. But just in terms of the the character's strength, too, to be able to realize, to, to sort of be able to see that what, you know, she, she wants... She care. She does genuinely care about Scotty. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't. I mean, you know, a rational person you would hope in that situation would, in fact, move. But um, at the same time, it's like you, 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 you do get a sense that she does genuinely care about Scotty. And but it's always it's interesting to see like, well, what is what am I in for here? It's like, what? Yeah. I, and I don't think she's prepared for just the sense that he's going to go. And I think part of it too is, you know, it's kind of like in Rebecca where Mr. DeWinter is like kind of wrapped with guilt. I think that Judy is another character that like actually mm-hmm. feels guilty about what happened. Cause she's like, Oh, here, I know very intimate details about this poor traumatized man and I straight up re-traumatized him obviously not using that language at that time but like she's recognizing that it's like I had a fragile person and I broke them to the point of hospitalization Mm -hmm. so I feel bad now about that and so I think that her guilt over that kind of clouded her judgment to getting re-involved with him and then him just kind of being on his obsessive path kind of really helped her kind of snap out of that to be like, Oh, mm, that's kind of why I didn't want to continue hanging out with him all of the time. Here are those concerning signs right now. Yeah. It is not a surprise whatsoever. Why this movie, uh, this movie failed in 1958 because I mean, you, you were talking about all of the different uh, emotional complexities, psychological complexities in the movie and you know you're absolutely right like scotty really is not and he he's not the hero in any stretch Mm -hmm. of the imagination through any of this movie any of this movie even though we're conditioned on his presence in the movie to be um you know there it's very famous story that biff trivia that Stewart wanted to do North by Northwest with uh, Hitchcock. And then Hitchcock essentially, uh, he, he basically uh, decided to do it with Cary Grant instead. I mean, Grant, Cary Grant is the better choice for Roger Thornhill, I think, anyway, because that's the persona that I think Cary Grant excels in. But at the same time, it's like it really did... Um, you know, it, it was sort of almost like Hitchcock blamed Stewart for the failure of Vertigo when that's not the case. I mean, this I think this movie would have been doomed to failure 
anyway in 1958 just because audiences weren't ready for that with Hitchcock. They weren't ready for that with Jimmy Stewart. And they weren't really ready to have that type of conversation <laughs> about the way filmmakers and men treat women. Really, boil is yeah. what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, and there's so much of a complexity about mental health that yeah. 1958 is not the time to be talking about <laughs> mental health. Mm-hmm. And how do you entice people to sit there for over two hours to try to watch someone who is in a constant mental health crisis? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you don't even have a grasp of what that means, what that looks like, because at that time, if we saw any hints of that, that was going away or we were going elsewhere and letting it just be away from us. So, I mean, it's not that far off these days, but um, we're at least a little bit better. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, there's no way that audiences in 58 would have been able to like have the understanding and comprehension of all of these very intense themes especially for like a general audience just look at so many films that are even in the past 20 years that had very deep meanings that general audiences do not understand because that's not the type of entertainment that they're looking for they're looking Mm -hmm. for escapism they're not looking to talk about metaphors of you know uh human trafficking kind of like black widow was or something like that you know no absolutely and uh you know it which makes it even more mind-boggling that just six years later hitchcock would return to this similar well with marnie and this was the last film he did with Bernard Herrmann. This was the last film he did with cinematographer Robert Burks, who did a phenomenal job on Vertigo, and uh, he did a phenomenal job on Marnie as well. Uh, Marnie is, without doubt, uh, the most complicated discussion of these three um, for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, the film stars Tippi Hedren as Marnie, and she is a pathological thief whom is noticed by Sean Connery's uh, character of Rutland and the way he the way he he becomes almost as he becomes obsessed with her in this almost in a similar way that Scotty does with Madeline in Vertigo but it's we aren't really as sympathetic with... uh, There's not really a whole lot of empathy for Rutland uh, as the film progresses. Um, This was the second of two collaborations that Tippi Hedren had with Alfred Hitchcock, this and the birds. Um, And part of the reason this is such a difficult conversation is because of the fact that Tippi Hedren was... Of all... And there were, look, we, we've already hinted at the fact that Alfred Hitchcock was pretty terrible to women, basically unless your name was Grace Kelly, in which case, you know, yes. you, you've, although even considering the fact that he wanted her to come out of retirement for this movie is 
problematic in and of itself in terms of how he viewed her. I so Tippy Hedren was the lead character and Hitchcock um Hitchcock basically had I uh, she was a model turned actress and she he treated her terribly to the point of um sexual harassment, sexual abuse which she's talked about over the years. She even talked about then and she was so uncomfortable with the experience that they they basically were not on speaking terms by the end of this movie. And uh, she he made sure she never worked. And her it basically derailed her film career, which is a shame mm-hmm. because she is fantastic in both The Birds and Marnie. And she has said that this is her favorite of the two performances in she did for Hitchcock. Um, I, I think, you know, having that tension behind the scenes, this is, this is, I think it's fairly clear that this is the weakest of the three as a Mm -hmm. film, um, for not necessarily just for those reasons, but you can't help but think that the behind the scenes tension and is between the two and how uncomfortable Tippi Hendren had to be uh, definitely bled through on the film as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things, because, you know, we'll probably dive a little bit more into it, but, like, this film touches on, like, sexual assault and sexual harassment, and ironically, that's literally what Alfred Hitchcock was doing to Tippi Hedren, and it's like, do you know what cognitive dissonance is? Because that is what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, like there is a just such a blatant misunderstanding of anything that was happening in the in the material that you can kind of tell that there were clearly problems in many steps along the way before it even got yeah. on screen. Uh, also, I am very offended by Sean Connery's accent in this film. <laughs> I was like, pick pick an accent. Just yeah. pretend you're Scottish now. <laughs> like, I don't, don't, just stay with one for me, please. Yeah, he, he I, the accent doesn't really stick in this movie. And eventually, I think he does just kind of lean into the the traditional Scottish. And it's like, you're supposed to be an American businessman in Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, let's just get Kate Winslet on this one with her Eastern Pennsylvania accent. But yeah, I, well, I find interesting about the Sean Connery characters that he has all of the worst parts of Scotty and all of the worst parts of Mr. DeWinter. Yeah. And like, that's it. That's all he was made of. Like, just the worst parts of these two characters that struggle with toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And he was like, that is my being. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he is completely... No, you're, that, is a, that is an excellent point. <laughs> no, Rutland... There's nothing about Rutland that is endearing or sympathetic <laughs> at all. Like, he is not... You at least up until a point you can feel sympathy for Maxim De Winter. At least up until yes. a point you might be able to mm-hmm. empathize with Scotty. There's nothing empathetic about Rutland in this movie at all. 
Now, I will say Sean Connery does a very good job of playing him, probably because yeah. Yeah, he even he had some of his... Mm-hmm. He, he had some pretty uh, toxic thoughts on women himself. Um, and uh, But it's... The way he is so... He is... Marnie is... In a way, Marnie through and through is almost the most sympathetic character of all of these female characters. Yes. Because it's... Well, Rutland, I mean, he really is just masculine and attractive. That's what his character yeah. does. <laughs> um, that's the only thing that entices people. And then Marnie is one of those characters that it's like, you see her just continually being abused by every other person mm-hmm. that she meets. And what does she like to do? Take money. If I had no impulse control, would love to do that too. Yeah. So, you know, like, there's not, you know, like, she's not, like, a mass murderer. She's not physically harming other people. No. She is taking from rich people and Robin Hooding it for herself. But, like, there, there's no, you know, again, she's not physically going out there and harming people the way that her mother, Rutland random Bruce Dern people do to her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just very, she is the most sympathetic character in all of them because she has that very complex, those very complex layers of, you know, she's clearly someone who survived trauma because she's very scrappy. She's very resourceful. Like that scene where she, there's a scene where she takes money out of a safe and as she's leaving, she takes her shoes off mm-hmm. to make sure that no one can hear her. And it's like, that's genius. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that's showing someone that it's like, oh, I'm not just like this dumb woman who's doing these things. And oops, I got caught. Like she's clearly someone who has had to be very resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she gets mixed up with people who can't pick an accent and <laughs> other really bonkers things that it's just, I mean, like her mom also couldn't quite pick an accent either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are just so many accent problems here. Um, and, and then the whole idea of trauma is just so grossly mishandled that Tippi mm-hmm. Hedren did as much as she could to make this a sympathetic character, but it's, it is essentially having someone who has no grasp of what that is saying, this is exactly what we're looking at. And it's like, nope, not nowhere remotely close. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what, I can't imagine what Grace Kelly would have been like in this role. It's like, Mm -mm. I, I just, you, you know, I mean, ultimately part of the reason she ended up not doing is because she was, uh, princess at this point and her people in her country did not want to see see her in a role like this again or any role where she was kissing another man and i just you know it's like you see grace kelly in like rear window and to catch a thief and other movies and the other movie well actually though and dow m for murder and it's like you can understand where grace kelly fits into that role Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can't see it with this one. It's like, it's not that she, I don't know that, it's not that I don't know that she could play. It's just, I'm not, 
I just can't see her having to go through this. Like, yeah. it's it's just so it's it's so difficult to imagine that she would be able to that she would be directed to go to the depths of the character the way Tippi Hedren was. And I think part of the thing too is to very much Tippi Hedren's detriment. Grace Kelly, if she was like, hey, bad things are happening here, that would have caused an absolute uproar. Yeah. And people would have been like, what the heck is this weird British dude doing to these blonde women that we've been watching for decades be abused by? Where Tippi Hedren is like, this is not good. And people are like, well, honey, that's your job. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that there would have been Alfred Hitchcock would have done what Alfred Hitchcock does best, which is torture women. And he would have tortured the wrong woman when it came to Grace Kelly, because she had a voice and had a lot of power at that Mm -hmm. time as princess of Monaco, where Tippi Hedren had to fall victim to the system of abuse in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I don't think that we would have had this movie had Grace Kelly actually been in it. Yeah. It, oh, it would have been reviled. I, I just can't mm-hmm. imagine. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I think overall it's a good movie. I think there are some very good things in it. I think Bernard Herman does a good job. I mean, he's essentially mm-hmm. doing a reworking of the same type of ideas he does in Vertigo. You can see where the connective tissue in terms of the type of movie this is with Vertigo and I mean the actors are good. Hedron is actually very good in this movie. Yeah. The but the problem is she's working with a thin as paper character that is yes. basically projected upon. And one of the problem one of the ultimate problems with this movie is that, like you said, it has a gross misunderstanding of trauma and the pop psychology at the end of this movie is comical it's arguably mm-hmm. even more comical like i've never had a problem with what the psychiatrist says at the end of psycho i you know it's like i know people yeah. have problems with that scene but it ultimately works for that movie but in that time period yeah and this one just doesn't work because of the fact that it's, it doesn't show the only reason this revelation has come forth is rutland is basically beat Marnie down and that's Mm -hmm. part of the problem it's not like this big I mean she obviously has traumatic memories of it that she's repressed from the flashbacks from the things that we've seen in the way she reacts to the color red but at the same time it's not in order for that to work the revelation has to be on her end not being told to her yes Yeah, because it's basically, he's like, I know everything and I'm going to tell you what's what, where it would be so much more impactful if it is, oh, the reason that all of these horrible things happen, the reason that I have so many struggles is because of this incident that happened to me. And instead, he's just like sitting there trying to blackmail everyone into just saying, this is why she can't look at the color red and is afraid of thunderstorms, everyone. And it's like that, no, that's not how we how we do that. Like, and it's um it kind of had 
what you would see later on in Sybil with Sally Field, where it was just like people looking at the most extreme response to trauma without even giving it the layers that it Mm -hmm. needs to be able to say like, oh yeah, yes, I got to this extreme level, but like here are all these minute things that occur because of the trauma history that I have. Um, so yeah, like has that pop psychology to it that is so poorly done. It's, and you know, that's, that's why even though, even though Scotty is not a sympathetic character by the time he realizes he sees the next necklace on Judy in Mm -hmm. Vertigo, we still empathize with him because the discovery of the revelation is ultimately in, he reveals he, he has that revelation himself. Nobody told mm-hmm. him this is what happened. This is why this happened. He realizes it. Oh, this is what's going on. And so that's why that ending scene as lacking in sympathy we are for Scotty we still empathize with him when he's on the at the top of the bell tower after Judy has fallen because we realize there's no coming back from him on this after this yeah like he is gone forever like there's no way he can survive this trauma he barely survived it the first time and you could say he never really survived it the first time Mm -hmm. there's no way he's going to survive it the second time and that's I, why it's mm-hmm. so tragic. I, I I like that point of the fact that it's like he is almost he is like a tragic character in that sense because it's like he is just doomed to be experiencing this trauma over and over again. And with the Kim Novak character, she at least kind of is acknowledging like kind of what you're doing is weird, but she doesn't completely like back away from him she doesn't completely blame him like there's when it came to Marnie and and Tippi Hedren's in her performance like it is literally just people going like you're crazy you're annoying stop doing this Mm -hmm. and it's just like you know he can have a trauma and emotional problems and we can still say like yeah maybe I probably wouldn't hang out with this person all this time but like good on people for not abandoning him because that's clearly not going to help him where Mm -hmm. this is so grossly blaming the person who has had dramatic experiences (laughs) for their trauma response. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, it just, it, I mean, it could be that maybe the material was the sort, I mean, I've never read the book that this is based off of. It's interesting that all three of these are based off of books but Mm -hmm. obviously very different books from very different authors and that Hitchcock found something he could study in them in adapting them. I mean, that is what's interesting about Hitchcock. And I think that's one of the reasons he's so revered as a great director of the thriller genre is the fact that he was able to find commonality, even within variety of the same type of, genre and I think you do see that in Marnie it's just that the script is so generically written like it's so like it feels like there's so much less care in the script here and it feels like I mean I've I've read trivia and stuff about uh Marnie and that 
there were certain things in the book that Hitchcock responded to that people were like, dude, why are you responding to this stuff in the movie, in, in this book, and why is it so important for you that this is part of part of the movie? But at the same time, it's like, yeah, this is this is the only reason this is not as... I think the main reason this is not as good as, as Psycho or as Vertigo and Rebecca is because of the fact that it's... The script is not as well written. The characters are not as drawn with as many shades of gray. I mean, sir, we've talked about Sean Connery's character in Rutland. He just has no moral compass or more... No, he has no moral authority either. Like, because, mm-hmm. I mean, if... You know, if normal normal circumstances, you would just, like, call the police on it. It's like, you know, he's... He... His... his some a lot so much of his behaviors are baffling. I will say the the one scene that really I think really does make a connection is late in the movie after the hunt is Marnie having to kill Forio, her horse. Mm-hmm. That move that scene has more emotional depth and emotional pain in it than arguably any other scene in this entire movie. And yeah. uh, I mean, it, it's it feel because of the fact that it's, you know, you obviously it goes it works towards our natural tendency to not want to see animals suffer, but it also I I think it it's a moment where Tippi Hendren knew the best way to play that, and she she plays it extremely well. Yeah, and like here's this living being in this world who has not harmed her that she now has to harm to put out of its suffering, which is, I think, very powerful. Um, I just looked, so the book was written by a gentleman by the name of Winston Graham, and then the screenplay was written by Joseph Stefano. And so all of a sudden we have, we have three men using their projection of what women who are traumatized look like and that all of that is then funneled into this character. So, I mean, the fact that Tippi Hedren even got the chance to uh, do that scene with uh, killing her horse is amazing that she got to be able to act that because obviously no one else was paying attention to what their job was. um, Actually, I I forgot about the fact that Joseph Stefano, who wrote Psycho... Um, who wrote the mm-hmm. book Psycho? Uh, was although I think the I think the one of the final screenplay cred I think the ultimate screenplay credit was to uh, J. Preston Allen, who is who was a who was a woman, uh, and uh, which I I didn't realize that that was the case until I was looking it up. And but um, yeah, I mean you you do see that very much. I, I wonder how much I can't imagine that she had that much uh sway over how Hitchcock mm-hmm. who, how how he uh shot this screenplay because of the fact that it is so it, it's it is like the worst tenant like like you said. I mean Rutland is basically like the unleashed it of Maxim DeWinter and Scotty in those two mm-hmm. movies. 
And uh, yeah, you just don't see. Um, I mean, you just don't see much. You don't see any sympathy for the female characters. I mean, any sympathy towards Marnie and even her mother to a certain extent is just surface. You you don't mm-hmm. deal with it on screen at all, especially at the end. It's like, you know, you're you're almost judging the mother for the, what she did at the end of the movie. And it's like, you know, I mean, Grand, I mean, she, you know, Marnie is not really keen on acknowledging her mother's existence, but I mean, that doesn't mean she doesn't necessarily, but I mean, even she, she acknowledges that it's like she doesn't necessarily feel much love from her mother. And the, mm-hmm. it, it's just one of those things where it's like the, the, the female characters in this movie in particular are really, um, really kind of poorly written. I mean, there's also the character of Lil played by Diane Baker and she's she's another office worker at Rutland's where uh, Marnie um, where Marnie last works, and she's also been in sort of like with uh, Midge in Vertigo, like she's been she she's been kind of pining to a certain extent for Rutland for a while, mm-hmm. and she's she's also somebody who sort of starts to realize that. You know, things are not as, you know, on the level with Rutland and Marnie's marriage. And, uh, yeah, she she's she's not as... She's just not as... She could have been a really interesting character. Yes. In the same way that Danvers is or Midge is, but at the same time... But, again, this movie just doesn't really know what to do with female characters at all. No. And I mean, one of the things too with Marnie's mother, like she had to sell her literal human person to be able to provide for herself and her daughter. And that can be pretty traumatic, especially in the 1940s and 50s. Um, So, you know, here we have essentially what could be a good framework of trying to understand historical trauma with women um, trying to understand what life does that forces women into these situations. And they're all just lost because, you know, too many men had too many ideas about yeah. what women do and don't do. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, this one doesn't, this one didn't connect with me. This most recent viewing is, uh, as much as it did before. I mean, part of it is because reading more about the uh, behind-the-scenes issues that Hitchcock uh, put upon Tippi Hedren, and it's it's just it, it's just really an unpleasant watch. Really, when you when you really start to think about um, the characters and what the movie is trying to say about the characters, I do think it's still interesting because of in the context of these. Two, other two movies because of the fact that I mean you do see common ideas, common themes start to emerge and you know between the three but at the same time you can definitely you know Marnie is kind of less has always been kind of considered lesser Hitchcock mm-hmm. especially compared to those two and there's kind of a reason for that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's good to watch them in the order that they were released because you do essentially, it kind of almost feels like you're watching Alfred Hitchcock lose control of his very bad impulses and ideas Mm -hmm. of women. And I think Marnie is that culmination of here are all of the bad things that he has thought about women and he made Tippi Hedren be the poster woman for that. Yeah. Um, Because I mean, just, you know, as you look at the women in these and the way that the women are framed in the film of Mm -hmm. like who they are, it, by the time you get to Marnie, it's just like, oh, oh boy, like you should (laughs) talk to someone about this. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the thing is, it's like, we're not, you know, I'm, I certainly am not wanting to be critical of these films. I don't necessarily, I hate the idea that I'm having to be critical of a Hitchcock film because he is one of the greats, but especially with Marnie, he really does deserve any criticism you give for him because of it's it like you said it's a culmination of his worst impulses when mm-hmm. it comes to how he treats women in his films how he treated women behind the scenes and just what he might have been trying to say in coming back to these ideas of male female dynamics where the men have issues that they're dealing with or don't deal with in the case of Rutland, you know, you, you see how much you, you see the worst side of it and you see the worst mm-hmm. ideas of what Hitchcock had in mind in these movies. And the thing is, it's like Hitchcock made delightful films. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I, I will, you know, I will go back to for like a dozen or so movies of Hitchcock and including the, three we're talking about, but at the same time, it's like, it's easy to see, you know, this is a good, because of the fact that Rebecca happened at the time that it did in his career, you know, it was right as he was getting ready to blow up big as one of Mm -hmm. the directors of our time. And then Vertigo hit at like absolute, at the absolute peak of his powers and then Marnie kind of starts to show the decline you have in later years in some cases. And he never really recovered after, you know, Psycho and The Birds as a great filmmaker. I mean, I know they're good films they made after that, but they're few and far between. But, um, yeah, with these three, part of the reason why I always have connected these are the themes and the ideas that we're talking about, but also because of the fact that it's like, I, I think these are, unfortunately, these are as representative of Hitchcock as an individual, as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. as they are him as a great cinematic storyteller. And I mean, it's it's worth considering the good and the bad of what that means with him. Yeah, I think that these three really highlight both the best and worst of the way that he worked. Because I mean, there are some shots in these films that are just like, oh man, these are, you can see all of the people who had the ripple effect influence yeah. of 
him using this shot and, um, you know, and, and, and just his understanding of uh, being able to start to work in film going from black and white and then more into color and all of that. Um, I, and I think it also kind of helps you step away from the quote unquote quintessential Hitchcock that everyone thinks of, of the psycho and the birds of North by Northwest dial M for murder and like start to see where he was trying to understand and balance women and that you start to see the cracks of, oh, he does not understand or respect women as these films progress because most times, you know, we talk psycho, we talk uh, North by Northwest, uh, maybe outside of the birds, um, but especially those two films, like the women are secondary characters. Mm -hmm. They are there to serve the main male character. Yeah. And in these three, the female characters while supporting also have layers to a certain extent as well. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, uh, again, and that is what makes, that is what makes these three worth talking about. And, uh, separating from the rest of Hitchcock. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, I, I, you know, you can you could do like separate podcasts with separate three episodes on Hitchcock with his horror films, with some of the movies he made with Cary Grant, with some of his British movies, with even maybe you know seeing some of his later films. But ultimately, staying in that thirties, forties, and fifties, where you could see him build his craft as a storyteller, and then just let it go into these somewhat experimental ideas. I mean, you you look at Rope. It's like, you know, he, yeah. he would go stylistically challenging sometimes. He would do thematically challenging sometimes, like with these three. And then he would do... Um, sometimes he would just do a straightforward thriller or romantic movie like To Catch a Thief or North by Northwest, which works on a very set mechanical level as a, as a thriller but also shows this is me this is this is the type of filmmaker that I've I'm confident enough that I can make this film interesting because of my craft even if the story seems fairly straightforward yes well and also like the the technicality of his films i think always stand out because it's you know we mentioned De Palma there even in Olivia Wilde book smart she does the dolly push in which started because of Alfred Hitchcock yeah so i mean it doesn't matter who's making the film his technicality of trying to tell a story and use the camera as a thematic device is very revolutionary from what we saw in early film. As early film, we tracked people and we followed them. And then we did some close-ups of people's faces during conversations. And then we just kind of tracked back. And he was like, what if we watch Cary Grant haul ass as a biplane (laughs) is coming near him? What if we zoom in here what if we start to get kind of thrillery here and you know start to 
turn the camera in a different mm-hmm. angle. Um, you know, just just that stuff alone is what has cemented him as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, of just his ability to say the camera is as much of a thematic tool as cinematography, sound, um, music composition, the acting, the writing. The camera itself is in, is what makes a film a film and not us just recording a play. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, it's interesting. I have seen some of his earlier British stuff and it's interesting to see those films in the context of having seen so many of the landmark films of his and then seeing just how that, how, how that, how he basically evolved from those early days to trying out some of those new techniques and sort of perfecting them for himself. Well, Morgan, thank you very much for joining me tonight. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I had so much fun. I'm so glad I got to talk about how much I hated Sean Connery's accent. (laughs) Um, Where can people find you online? Uh, I say the best place to find me is over at the Untitled Cinema Gals Project uh, Twitter. Uh, We also have an Instagram. Both of them have the same handle as uh, at Cinema Gals. That is the best place to find my stuff, get branched out. And also, um, Chelsea also being chaotic because much like Brian, we are a chaotic Leo <laughs> podcast. Yes. And uh, it, it, was, it was so great to talk to you. And uh, I, I do thank you very much for your time. I'd like to thank Morgan for uh, joining me tonight. Unfortunately, Chels could not be available uh, due to uh, work-related commitments, but it was, hopefully we'll have both of them on together because it's a lot of fun to talk to those two. Uh, you can check out our um, episode on soundtracks at Untitled Cinema Gals, and it is, I believe it's called All the Bops. And we talk about Vertigo. We talk about a bunch of other great uh, film soundtracks. And uh, Chels will be hopefully back on the pod. Will be on the podcast later in the year when uh, I wrap up a uh, project that kind of started as you know just sort of like a one-off, but has become just a larger, uh, interesting discussion on the year in general. And I hope to that she will be able to uh, join me for that. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me at YouTube, Apple, Google, and Spotify, as well as other podcast platforms. You can also check me out on twitch.tv backslash scuttlelemur. Subscribe to patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, as well as my written work, which is at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good rest of the day.